My global IQ is 109. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'm so glad you could join us for what I think will be a fascinating conversation with Ambassador Dennis Ross. He and David Makovsky are co-authors of a book that I enjoyed so much this past Memorial Day weekend, Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. It was published uh, late last fall by our friends over at Public Affairs. I really wanna thank our, our co-sponsor as well, the American Jewish Committee. Uh, each year, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the American Jewish Committee put on a series of programs called the International Perspective Series. And we hope to be doing those not virtually, but we will see what happens, won't we? But we'll certainly have recordings of those shows for you to be able to watch. I wanna thank uh, our program sponsors too, Ray and Beyond Termini, as well as Pegasus Bank and Joe Goyne. So Ambassador Ross is someone who is well familiar to World Affairs Council's audience throughout the country. He is today the counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's also a professor at Georgetown University. And for over 12 years, he played a direct and a very significant role in negotiating and shaping U.S. involvement in the Middle East peace process. He served with and under presidents uh, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. And I think you'll be interested to know that his early academic career focused on the Soviet Union. In fact, he wrote his doctorate dissertation on Soviet decision-making. Ambassador, always a pleasure to see you. I know you're going to speak for about 15 or so minutes, or, and then we'll open it up for questions, and I might have a few to add as well. Great. First of all, nice to see you again, and uh, next time I hope to be doing it in person as opposed to being doing it virtually. As we were saying before we began, uh, one of the great things about doing this is that even in the midst of all the limitations of the coronavirus, at least you can stay active, involved, there's a sense of community, and uh, I very much enjoy taking part in these kinds of webinars. So let me say something about, about the book, and I'll frame a bit of a, a context so that we can have a discussion. The book is entitled, as you saw, Be Strong and of Good Courage. The be strong part relates to the reality that Israel needs to be strong. Israel is in a region where it faces all sorts of threats. Iran is determined to pursue a precision-guided project, uh, meaning that it is building precision-guided capabilities to put on the 130,000 rockets that Hezbollah has. So there's Iran embedding itself uh, in Syria, Shia militias embedding themselves there, precision-guided project related to uh, making the rockets that Hezbollah and Shia militias have far more accurate than they are now. ISIS is in the Sinai. There are obviously questions about stability of its neighbors. Israel lives in a very tough neighborhood, and it has to be strong. You look at what has happened in the, the war in Syria, what happened in the war in Iraq before. These are wars that are fought without limitation. Uh, and in the Middle East, if you're not strong, you're not vulnerable, you're dead. So Israel needs to be strong. That's the strong part of the title, be strong and of good courage. But the good courage relates to you also have to be wise. And here... The focus, reason we talk about be strong and of good courage, and the, the reason we speak of the need for wisdom, Israel is currently on a path that if it stays on the path, if it keeps building outside the settlement blocks, and the settlement blocks are those areas 
that are in about five to six percent of the West Bank that are closest to the Green Line, closest to June 467, where the vast majority of Israeli settlers live. Most Israeli settlers moved into the West Bank not for ideological reasons, but they moved into the West Bank for economic reasons, quality of life reasons. So most live close to the major urban centers within Israel. Uh, and they do that because that's where they work. So if you're talking about 80% of the, of the settlers, roughly 80% live within about five to 6% of the area closest to Israel. And the, block, the idea of blocks is to absorb those areas into Israel uh, and then you would compensate the Palestinians with territory in return from Israel. The concept of settlement blocks and swaps goes back to the year 2000 when I frankly helped to develop them before we went to Camp David. They were adopted as part of American policy ever since that time. If, build, if Israel builds within the blocks, and there are 130 settlements in all of the West Bank, 52 of those are within the block areas. The other 78 are outside. If Israel builds within those block areas, it is consistent with a two-state outcome. If Israel keeps building outside the block areas, then the ability to separate physically from Palestinians is gonna be lost. There will be a tipping point. I can't tell you exactly how soon it will be. There's now 109,000 Israelis who live outside the blocks. That tipping point will come once it's passed. The ability to separate from Palestinians will be lost. Even though neither David nor myself believe that two states is available anytime soon, and we can get into all the reasons for that on both sides of the, of the equation. The fact is you don't want to foreclose the option. You don't want to lose the ability of being able to separate and have two states later on when it might become available. But to be able to stop building outside the blocks takes real political courage in Israel. Again, getting back to the title, the reason being that the, the settler movement in Israel is politically significant. It's a legitimate movement. Uh, it's part of the landscape politically, and they have a weight that is disproportionate to their actual numbers. But if Israel keeps building there and you lose the ability to separate, then you've lost that option. But to take on the, the political settler movement, the, the settler movement in Israel, takes, as I said, significant political courage. Now the book is really, uh, an effort to look back by looking at four leaders in Israel, David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon, four leaders who were very different ideologically and personally, but they were very similar uh, in terms of how they looked at the whole issue of leadership and the role of the prime minister. They all understood one thing. They all understood that the responsibility for making decisions was theirs they weren't going to defer it to their successors. They weren't going to avoid their responsibility. And by responsibility, they meant not only to make decisions, but to bear the consequence for the decisions they made. To give you an example of that, Yitzhak Rabin, he was prime minister twice. In the mid-1970s when he was prime minister, uh, many of you may recall Entebbe, when Israel had to go several thousand kilometers to rescue, carry out a rescue operation uh, of Israelis and, and Jews who were hijacked on a plane to Uganda. The non-Jews on the plane were released, the Jews and the Israelis were kept. When it became clear there was very little prospect of their release and their lives were in danger, Yitzhak Rabin made the decision to send commandos a couple thousand kilometers to a base where Israel had no presence, a hostile area, Idi Amin was on the head. When the plane of commandos took off, uh, Rabin wrote two statements en route to try to rescue uh, the hostages. He wrote two statements. One was announcing the success, 
if it was going to be successful, and the other announcing his resignation. For him, uh, if this was going to go wrong, and it would go, if it went wrong, it would go badly wrong, he was the one who would bear the responsibility. That meant he would resign. All of these leaders shared this kind of an impulse. Ariel Sharon used to talk about the solitude uh, of the leader, because when you make these big decisions, you make them alone. They understood what was important. They put the state first, not their politics first. If it meant taking on their political base, that's exactly what they did. Menachem Begin, when he did the Camp David Accords and then the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty, and he provided for an autonomy plan for Palestinians, Menachem Begin was called a traitor by the people who had been closest to him. But he weighed the political backlash versus what he saw as the significant opportunity of making peace uh, with Egypt, knowing uh, what the costs were uh, of possibly another war, knowing the danger of if Egypt, if he didn't make peace, uh, what might well result of Egypt being either Sadat Sarlat not surviving or Egypt going back into a rejectionist camp. So all of these leaders, even those I said, ideologically, they were very different. They understood what leadership required. And what we do in this book is basically provide in-depth profiles of these four talk about their journeys, how they evolved personally, the significance of their evolution, and their readiness, as I said, to put the state first, not their politics first. The idea in doing this was then to lead to what is the concluding chapter of the book that spells out what Israel needs to do today with an eye towards saying, can Israel's leaders today draw the lessons from these four leaders and what they were prepared to do? Now, as you listen to me say this, uh, and as you read the book, as I know you all will, one question you might be uh, you might be posing is okay, but didn't uh, President Trump come out with a, a peace plan that calls for two states? Doesn't that solve this problem? And the answer is it might have if the plan made the possibility of two states more likely. Uh, and the the problem is is that the state that is offered uh, in the West Bank is divided up into different areas, but it's also completely surrounded. Uh, just to put this in perspective, I was sitting at the time that the plan was unveiled with an Arab official from an Arab state that was actually looking to find a way to be responsive to the plan. Both this official and I had been briefed two days before the plan was unveiled by Jared Kushner. Uh, what he described to us in general terms was there'll be a state, there'll be a capital for that state in a part of East Jerusalem, uh, and there'll be a four-year period where there's a freeze uh, on settlements. But it turns out, which sounded pretty good, but it turns out the four-year freeze applies only to 15 settlements that are to be within the state itself. You will see in this 15 different dots within the Palestinian state, not separating state, but within the Palestinian state that will be under Israeli sovereignty. Exactly how it worked that they're under Israeli sovereignty, if there's a crime Israel deals with it in the middle of the Palestinian state, I don't know how that would work. But I can tell you, when you see the, not just the small size, but the fragmentation uh, here, the fragmentation is because when I talked about settlement blocks, the Trump plan doesn't just absorb the settlement blocks, the Trump plan absorbs all 130 of the settlements. And the reason that you see the territorial area of the Palestinian state divided up is to accommodate 63 settlements, uh, 
that will then be allowed to grow and then to accommodate these other 15 that will be within the state itself. Note one other thing, the state is completely surrounded by Israel. There is no border with Jordan. Now, understanding there's a very significant role for the, uh, from a security standpoint for Israel, Israel does need to be able to control the Jordan Valley. And that's the area on your map to the right uh, of the, above the Dead Sea, uh, to, the, to the right of what would be the Palestinian area. Uh, Israel does need to control that from a security standpoint. Yitzhak Rabin used to talk about the Jordan River, which is where you see on the map, as being the security border for Israel, but not the political border. He understood there are times when you have to find a way to reconcile the practical needs with the political and symbolic needs. If, I, and I worked on a back channel after I left the Obama administration, where we came up with the idea of creating a 100-year lease of this area for Israel. So technically it would be under Palestinian sovereignty, but practically it would be under Israeli control. That's not what the Trump plan does. The Trump plan creates Israeli sovereignty there, which will be a real problem for the Jordanians, not for practical reasons, but for political reasons. But getting back to the Arab official I was sitting with, when he looked at this map, he said, nobody can look at that map and say it looks like a state. Uh, and so we can't stand up and defend it. The Palestinians haven't been prepared to negotiate on, on this, and we can talk more about that. Uh, the problem I see is that what has been presented makes a one-state outcome much more likely. Palestinians, when looking at this map, including those who are not part of the Palestinian Authority, say, look, if this is a state we're being offered, why shouldn't we just stay part of Israel and just have the Israelis give us a vote? And I'm afraid that's the drift of the current policy. That's where things are leading. They, Trump peace plan doesn't make that like that outcome less likely, it makes it more likely. Uh, and if you have one state for two people, Palestinians will simply say, fine, one state for two people, one person, one vote. Uh, that is no longer Israel. That's no longer Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. So the need for an Israeli leader to limit, in a sense, what they're prepared to do outside of the settlement blocks. Uh, is the key to preserving Israel as a Jewish democratic state, which was the essence and the vision of what Zionism was all about. Zionism represents the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. This is a book that uh, we wrote to, in a sense, say, okay, look, there are real threats to Israel uh, that are very tangible. That's why Israel has to be strong. But there's also a threat to Israel's identity and to its character which may not be so tangible, but is no less real. Uh, and we are headed towards, as I said, what is a tipping point. And Israel will need a leadership that is prepared to make the tough decision of limiting what it's going to do outside of the settlement blocks, at least in terms of settlement development construction and what will become part of Israel. We do have a new government in Israel that is a more centrist government than its predecessors. It is still under Prime Minister Netanyahu. He is emphasizing that he wants to go ahead with annexation. However, I suspect he used the word a judicious approach to annexation. And I suspect that even though he's talking about absorbing all the territories that are permitted to Israel under the terms of the Trump plan, which as I said, includes the Jordan Valley, which is 20% uh, of the West Bank, and all 130 settlements. Uh, I suspect that what Netanyahu may do if he goes ahead 
he may well go ahead and annex only some of the areas within the bloc. That may still produce a reaction from the Palestinians, it's almost certain to, but very much depends upon how he chooses to frame uh, the issue. Is he doing this to be consistent with a two-state outcome? Is he doing this not to preempt the ability of the Palestinians to negotiate? Is he doing this with a recognition that he welcomes a Palestinian counterproposal? Uh, all of that could have an effect on what the consequences are, but even that will take courage because uh, the right wing uh, will oppose him and even some of the right within his own party may well oppose that. Whether the fact that he has two former chiefs of staff of the military now as a defense minister, Ben Gantz, and the foreign minister, Gabi Ashkenazi, maybe as a collective, they can adopt a position that will help to preserve Israel as a Jewish democratic state and avoid Israel becoming one state for two people. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. I'd like you to talk a bit about the arguments of demography because you devote several pages to that. And there really are some different arguments. Clearly you have your view, uh, but sort of outline for our viewers yeah. uh, what yeah. say like uh, Joran Ettinger, what, what he's saying and what right. is his background. Right. Look, thanks. Thanks for asking that question. It's true. And the concluding chapter of the book, one of the reasons for going through it is precisely because Joram Ettinger, who is not a demographer, but he's very much on the right side of the political spectrum, he has tried to make the case that demography is not a problem, that Israel can absorb all this territory and demography is not a problem. And he tries to say that the that basically uh, the numbers of those who are professional demographers like Sergio de Pergola, that they have miscounted. They count too many Palestinians and they undercount uh, on the Israeli side. What we do in the book is, is actually go through and say, all right, let's look specifically at the numbers that each side is outlining. And it turns out that even by Edinger's own numbers, the ratio would be 65-35 today, meaning 65, if you count, if you look at Israel and you look at the West Bank, there would be 65% Jews and 35% Arabs. Now, note what I just said. We're not counting Gaza. If you count Gaza, even by his numbers, it would be much closer to parity. We don't count Gaza. He doesn't count Gaza. And the reason is Israel got out of Gaza. You can't have it both ways. You can't say Israel needs to withdraw from places. And then when they do, you act as if they haven't withdrawn. So Israel got out of Gaza 100%. So we don't count Gaza. But I want to put in perspective the numbers. The reality is, if you go back to 1986, in 1986, and you look at the Jewish-Arab ratio of population counting Gaza, Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank, the ratio then was 63% to 37%, counting Gaza, and not counting the more than 1 million uh, Jews who came from the former Soviet Union and their descendants, which is actually much more than 1 million now. So if, if it was 6337, not counting the Russian immigrants, uh, and including Gaza, 
and even by his numbers it's 60, 65, 35 today. Uh, and by the, the Pergo's numbers of 6139, with a trend line where over time you'll move towards parity, you can see that demography is a potential problem. And Jim, I would even take it one step further. Let's say the numbers are 6535 today. I actually think they're closer to, to the 6139 number, but let's, let's take Edinger's numbers of 6535. Already, you're looking at a ratio of two to one. It's a little less than two to one. When it's 80-20, which is what it basically has been from the time of Israel's existence, to what it would be if you absorb only the settlement blocks, meaning 80% Jewish, 20% Arab, that's consistent with basically the nation state of the Jewish people and not really having, you have a minority, but you don't really have two national identities that are, in a sense, coexisting in one state the same way. When the numbers get up to 65-35, and they're going to go up, when they're at 60-40, you now basically have two separate national identities in one state. In the Middle East, the one thing we know for sure is that where you have more than one national identity or a tribal identity or a sectarian identity, you have a state that is in constant conflict. If you want to turn Israel into Syria or Iraq or even Lebanon that is completely paralyzed today, that's what you would do. But if you want to preserve the character of Israel and you want to preserve the rush, rough ratio of 80-20, you absorb the settlement blocks, but you don't absorb the rest of the Palestinians, the 2.5 million Palestinians who are in the West Bank. How do you see the situation now that seems to be evolving that the Palestinians are really being sort of pushed aside, especially by their traditional allies, even if they didn't want to be there, but like the GECC, particularly UAE and Saudi Arabia, because it seems to me that there have been so many issues, whether it was the move of the embassy to Jerusalem or this discussion of annexation, that largely the Arab countries have been relatively quiet about it. Look, there is a, there's no question there is a different strategic geopolitical reality in the Middle East. The, almost every one of the Sunni Arab leaders sees a threat to them that Israel is a major bulwark against. If you're looking against, you're looking at Iran or the Shia militias, you see Israel as a main counterpart. Who is in fact actually countering the Iranians in the region actively, not through the maximum economic pressure, but actively, it's Israel. Israel has carried out more than one, more than 1,200 strikes into Syria to blunt what the Iranians are trying to do in terms of military infrastructure and in terms of the Shia militias, the spread of the Shia militia. So the Gulf states look at Israel as meeting the major bulwark against that threat. But they also see him as a major bulwark against the threat of the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Egypt, in the Sinai. It, you know, they don't broadcast this and Egypt doesn't broadcast it, but Israel's the one who carries out most of the, the raids there with the Jordanians. A great deal of what the Israelis do is again to, to strike against some of, the tar some of those targets that are along the, the border that Jordan has with Syria. Uh, not to mention material assistance that the Israelis quietly provide. Many of these Sunni Arab leaders see Israel as a natural partner against the threats they fear most. 
and they look at the Palestinians increasingly through a lens of frustration. I can't tell you how many have said to me in private, again, Dan says it's in private, the Palestinians will never do anything for themselves. All they know how to do is say no. I had one Arab leader, a leader, say to me, literally, he, get, he rehearsed the history of what the Palestinians have said no to. And when he finished, they said, look, you sound like Abi Ibn. The Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, and he laughed and said, I agree with that. So there's a, there's a change at the leadership level. Now, is it true at the public level? Not so much. Partly because there's been nearly 70 years of socialization of Israel being the problem. So even if these leaders want to turn around, it's not a light switch that they can simply flip and everything's going to be fine. But let's keep things in perspective also. There are 500 Israeli companies that are now actively working in the Gulf. They're not there under their Israeli passports, but everybody knows they're Israelis. Israel is not only seen as this kind of bulwark, but it's also the startup nation. These countries that want to create digitally based economies, who do they look to? Increasingly, they look to the Israelis. And so Israel has a place in the region that it never had before. Uh, and that affects how the Palestinians are seen. I am not surprised there wasn't a major response on Jerusalem uh, or the Golan Heights uh, or even the Trump plan. Uh, partly because, by the way, these were all American moves. They were not Israeli moves. I am more concerned about the response to annexation. In Jordan's case, it'll be, it's a real complication. And the king will be forced to adopt positions that he himself might not want to adopt. Not because of the Palestinian presence in Jordan, but because of his own base, the East Bankers. We're not Palestinians, but who fear that annexation is the beginning of a, of a push by the Israeli right to have the Palestinians leave and come to Jordan. And so he needs to be, to respond in a very sharp way, given what will be a set of internal pressures. The Palestinians with annexation, will the Palestinian security, now Abu Mazen has actually announced he's suspending the security coordination, but even if he, even if he chooses not to, Will Palestinian security forces show up for work? They define themselves as playing a role in terms of fostering a national aspiration of the Palestinian people. If they are seen as now safeguarding Israeli annexation, that's probably not a sustainable position for them. So I worry that annexation not only makes a one-state outcome more likely, I also worry about what the backlash may be that could be different. I don't think that the Gulf states will, will react much. I don't think that Egypt will react much. But I also think the move towards greater normalization with Israel, which you've seen, you have the UAE, which just flew a plane uh, carrying 16 tons of humanitarian supplies that they wanted delivered to the Palestinian Authority. They flew it to Tel Aviv. The Palestinian Authority, I can only say you know, on the basis of sheer stupidity, turned it down because they flew it to Israel. Uh, so what's happening? These supplies, guess where they're going? They're going to Gaza. They're going to hospitals in Gaza where Hamas is in control. Is Hamas less pure when it comes to Israel than the, the PA? This is just ludicrous. Uh, but it, what it does is it reinforces the attitudes. Now this concludes with one thought on this. There were four Gulf states, small ones, UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman, that were 
open to the idea of at this stage, even at this stage, being prepared to conclude agreements of non-belligerency with Israel. That will be off the table if there's annexation. So I, we can get into why I think Bibi wants to continue to go ahead with it, but I, I see it as, as being problematic uh, and not providing much gain to Israel. 